That's a great version, a pretty old song. Enjoyed that a lot. If you uh, have a Bible with you, why don't you go to Romans chapter 10 and maybe go to the book of Jonah as well. You're going to want to be in both this morning. Romans chapter 10 and the Old Testament book of Jonah. You'll find that very near the end of the Old Testament. He's one of the minor prophets. We'll get to that in just a minute. We had a very cool thing happen at New Hope this last week in that we took this little gold shovel. It's not real gold. We didn't spend our money on that, but uh, we did take it out to the property and we used it for groundbreaking out of the new property this last week. Maybe some of you saw the video online. Um, This particular shovel, I was told, is the original shovel that was used for the groundbreaking for this building in 1971, roughly. And so uh, Larry got it out and he repainted it gold and we used it for the new facility out there on East Saginaw Highway. Um, I know that many of you were not able to be there because, uh, you know, it was 7.30 in the morning, a lot of people were on their way to work and had other responsibilities. So we streamed it live, and since groundbreaking on Monday morning, about 1,800 people have watched that already. So that's amazing because there's 1,200 people who call New Hope their church. So that means you all been talking about what's going on here. Goes, good job, well done. And we continue to be encouraged by all the people who are very interested in driving by and sending us notes and saying how excited they are about what's going on. So if you haven't been by the property recently, I would encourage you to drive by because you might be shocked in the last five days how much it has changed already. It's a good reminder that there's nothing permanent on this earth because they've removed all the trees and it's just been completely stripped bare and it's ready for the new building. And if you're new to New Hope and you have no idea what I'm talking about, we're building a new building out on East Saginaw Highway between Meyer and Costco and it's really easy to see. So you drive down the road and you'll see the big cleared area where the building is going to be built. Well, I'd like to pray with you about what we're about to study and I'm going to invite you to do that with me and let's take a minute and talk to the Father and ask Him to teach us. Father, we ask for every person in this auditorium and for those watching online right now that we would be in a place of complete surrender to you, in in this place where you can speak to us and, and we will receive it. So we ask for ourselves and we lift ourselves up before you that your Holy Spirit would have freedom and that you would guide us and lead us and show us what it means to really be surrendered to you. Just like we sang in the first song, God, that all that we have is yours, and we sang in the last song that our heart would be still and and just accept what you bring our way, that we would be in that place, and it wouldn't just be a song, but that we would really be resolved, that that would be our walk with you. That, That would be a dream, Father. But as we see in this story this morning, that's not always the case with us, and so we yield and ask that you would teach us and lead us and Show us what your ideal is. We pray that you would teach us now through the power of the Holy Spirit, and we ask for that in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we've been looking in Romans 10, Paul's been making this argument that the gospel is really clear, and it's not hard to receive if people could just hear about it. And so we ended last week with Romans chapter 10, verse 14 that it just needs to be more voices. And you'll see this particular verse on the screen, Romans 10, 14. How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in Him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? And I told you last week that that phrase preacher really messes with a lot of people because they think that it's talking about what I do up here or what pastors do every weekend. And that's not what it's talking about. A preacher is merely a voice for God in this context, someone who's willing to talk about Jesus. 
And so we talked about the reality of who the they is in that passage. It says five times in those few short verses, they, 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 five times. Well, who's the they? The they is your neighbor, your coworker, people in your family, people whom you have in your social circle. And that translates over to what we're going to look at in the book of Jonah this morning because he's really the antithesis of what God has called us to do. When he says, hey, just get out there and talk about me, Jonah, you find, actually doing exactly the opposite. And so I thought he was a really good illustration because God's been pushing on my heart over the last couple of weeks about looking at the life of Jonah in relation to Romans chapter 10. Uh, if you're new to the Bible or maybe you're not real familiar with it, you, maybe you've heard about Jonah and the whale throughout the course of your life and you've always wondered, is, is that real? Is that a real story? Is this an actual historical person? Well, I'm here to tell you this morning, it is a real story. It is a historical person. And there's a couple sources that validate him. First of all, in the book of 2 Kings, one of the older books in the Bible, you find Jonah being spoken of simply because he was a prophet who lived during the time of King Jeroboam. And he prophesied during that period of time that Jeroboam was going to rule over Israel during a time of great prosperity. And indeed, it did come to pass. So Jonah was really popular with the people because what he prophesied was actually accurate. Israel grew in its wealth and in its strength. But that's just one source. Another source is found actually in the New Testament who validates Jonah, and he goes by the name of Jesus. And Jesus validates Jonah. Jonah is spoken of by Jesus as an actual historical person who spent three days in the belly of a fish. We'll get back to that in just a minute. So this story is set around 700 BC, 700 years before Jesus is on the planet, 760 BC to be precise, and it's around the city of Nineveh that much of this develops. And that's the location of one of the kings of Assyria. When you think of modern-day Syria, you hear about it in the news, that's part of the region of the ancient metropolis of Nineveh. Assyria was a massive empire, one of the world's greatest superpowers, and even more powerful than Babylon and Persia at one point. So Assyria grew to such prominence and such strength that they became a thorn in the flesh to the nations that surrounded them, in particular Israel. And when they conquered nations, they tortured nations, and they took money from nations as tribute, and they put their people in subjection. And so the ancient kings, according to what archaeologists have shown us about the Assyrian people, is that they loved to record the things they did to the people they conquered. And it was torture in no small measure, and you can read about it later yourself. I, I won't get into the gory details. Just Google the, the Assyrian Empire, and you'll see. So because of this reputation and because they're taking money from Israel and because they're torturing people, Israel became haters of the kingdom of Assyria because they were in subjection to them. Well, Jonah arrives on the planet, and he's raised during this era, during this period of time in which the Assyrian empire is against Israel and all his life, all he's ever known is being under the boot of Assyria and having to give away their money to Assyria, and living in fear of Assyria. And then God does the strangest thing. He calls Jonah to go to the city of Nineveh, the great city of the Assyrian empire, and begin speaking to people there about the love of God and what He wants to do to rescue them. In other words, He has to become the beautiful feet that we spoke about in Romans last week, Romans chapter 10. Go with me to the story of Jonah, Jonah chapter 1 and verse 1, and this is how it begins. 
The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Arise and go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Notice right away, it's not to the presence of the Lord, it's from the presence of the Lord. And if you're a person who follows after God, you don't want to be running from the presence of the Lord. You want to go to the presence of the Lord. Well, he chooses to go to Tarshish. Now, Tarshish is very likely southern Spain. We don't know for sure because some of the names have been lost to history, but it looks like, according to the records, it's southern Spain, which is 2,500 miles to the west. Nineveh is 500 miles to the east. He's going 2,500 miles away. In other words, 3,000 miles away from where he's supposed to be. He doesn't want to do what God wants him to do, not to the presence of the Lord, but from the presence of the Lord. So this guy has a great deal to learn about God's mercy because he has a very, very narrow view of the mercy of God. God's not looking to destroy. God's looking to save. So Jonah's not going to have anything to do with that. God sends Jonah because the wickedness of the city has come up before me, according to verse 2. Their own king recorded in history that they were a violent people and a vile people, V-I-L-E. Let your mind go with that one. Violent and vile both. And the king acknowledges, that's the way my people are. They're incredibly cruel. Well, Jonah understood God's wrath against people like that. Jonah understood if God wanted to destroy them and he wanted to take them out, but he also knows that God is a forgiving God, so he's going to run the opposite direction, jump on a ship, go to Tarshish, 2,500 miles away. So just put this in modern context. God tells you to go to the east, go to New York City, go 500 miles away, go to New York. But you say, no, no way. I don't want anything to do with that. I'm going to go into L.A. I'm going to go 2,500 miles away, the opposite direction. I want to be 3,000 miles away from where you want me to be. When we run from God, and I've lived long enough to understand this principle is true every single time. When we run from God, we very likely end up losing the very freedom we're trying to chase after. We end up surrendering the freedom we're seeking because the will of God is not an option. If you're a follower of God, the will of God is an obligation. And how you respond to the will of God in your life, it determines the extent to which He's going to use you. Go with me to verse 4. The Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea, so that the ship was about to break up. Then the sailors became afraid, and every man cried to his God, and they threw the cargo which was in the ship to the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone below into the hold of the ship, lain down, and fallen asleep. So the wind is really great, therefore the storm is really great, and the storm is so terrible, the ship begins to break up. And these guys are seasoned sailors, and they're screaming like third grade girls out on the playground. This is freaking us out. And so they begin emptying the very thing that's precious to them. They get paid for carrying cargo, and they're taking the cargo, and they're throwing it overboard. Their life is in that much jeopardy. Verse 6, so the captain approached him and said, how is it that you are sleeping? Get up and call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. Each man said to his mate, come, let us cast lots so that we may learn on whose account this calamity has struck us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah 
And they said to him, tell us now, on whose account has this calamity struck us? What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? Do you think they're stressed, right? That barrage of question tells you there's some tension going on there. Why why is this happening to us? Watch Jonah's response, verse 9. He said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and dry land. Then the men became extremely frightened, and they said to him, how could you do this? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. In other words, what have you done? Emphatically saying, you're responsible for this mess. And he knows that he's responsible for it because of his disobedience. The massive storm is evidence of this. Yet, interestingly, he's willing to die rather than submit to what God wants him to do. Watch with me in the next verse. So they said to him, verse 11, what should we do to you that the sea may become calm for us? For the sea was becoming increasingly stormy. He said to them, pick me up and throw me into the sea. The sea will become calm for you, for I know that on account of me, this great storm has come upon you. I find it really interesting as I was reading through this that he does not ask them to take him back to Israel. There's no request, will you turn the ship around and return me to the land in which I came from. He would rather die in the midst of the storm or be thrown overboard rather than give into God's directive for his life. Next verse, verse 13. However, the men rowed desperately to return to the land, but they could not, for the sea was becoming even stormier against them. And they called on the Lord and said, we earnestly pray, O Lord, do not let us perish on account of this man's life. And do not put innocent blood on us, for you, O Lord, notice capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Earlier they're praying to small God, G-O-D, small G. Now they're recognizing the Lord God, Yahweh. For you, O Lord, have done as you have pleased. These guys are pagans. They're sailors who don't know God. They have no relationship with the Lord God. But instinctively they recognize the value of human life. And they recognize to the degree that they don't want to be guilty for taking life, so they're pleading for mercy for killing an innocent man because of this verse 15. Verse 15, so they picked up Jonah, threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. Now, according to the story as it unfolds, You'll see some of this in chapter 2. The waves and the billows begin to break over the top of Jonah, and he can't swim because he's got all of his clothing on, and he just begins sinking, and the sea plunges over him. He's in the water. They're still in the boat. And for these guys in the boat, they're watching everything that's happening, and it causes them to turn to God. Watch verse 16. Then the, men, then the men feared the Lord greatly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. You don't do those things unless you recognize God is God. Those who do not follow God now follow God in spite of Jonah. He should have been leading them, but he's not. He's turned away from God. And verse 17, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. Now, traditionally, people think of this as a whale. They think that he's swallowed by a whale, but history doesn't record that. We'll get to that particular detail in a moment. Jesus speaks of it as a great sea creature. 
He refers to it as a great fish. There's no description given. The Hebrew language is a little bit more specific with it. We'll go into that, but that's not the most important detail. It's less important reality than the bigger reality is this. God's purposes will not be prevented by the actions of disobedient people trying to avoid His will, trying to get around His will. So God loves you too much to let you just wander off on your own. If you haven't read Hebrews 12 lately, I would encourage you this week, do that. Hebrews chapter 12 is all about people who try and run away from God, but God pursues them and doggedly goes after them until they yield. If they say they belong to Him, God's going to pursue them to bring them back, and He does that with Jonah. Now, for Jonah's part, he knows the great fish is actually God at work. Because as you'll see in chapter 2, he has an absolute sense that if God has saved me from drowning, he's at work in my life. There must be a future for me. So he prays from inside the fish. Go with me to chapter 2, verse 1. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the stomach of the fish, and he said, I called out of my distress to the Lord, and he answered me. I cried for help from the depth of Sheol, and you heard my voice. So when it's almost too late, he prays. He didn't pray in Israel. He didn't pray, God, will you go with me as I go to the city of Nineveh? I need your strength. He waits until it's too late, until he's nearly drowned. He drops to the bottom of the sea, and I'll let you read chapter 2 later today yourself, and you'll find that what he gives is an eyewitness account of a person who's drowning. He speaks of things that he sees specifically on the bottom of the Mediterranean Sea. And here's why that's so significant. He's an eyewitness to the plunge on the bottom, and he describes mountains, things that you wouldn't normally see unless you're on the bottom of the ocean. That's significant because remember in 760 B.C., there's no underwater cameras. There's no submarines. There's no scuba divers. Nobody goes to the bottom of the ocean and survives. And yet he describes as an eyewitness in 760 B.C. only things you could see if you're an eyewitness, and he sinks to the very bottom. And when he's on the bottom, he cries out these last words as the fish swallows him, salvation is from the Lord. And in that moment, everything changes. And he spends three days and three nights in the belly of a fish, and Jonah chapter 2 comes to an end, verse 10, then the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah up onto the dry land. So check this, three days and three nights in putrid darkness. And now he finds himself, after a three-day return trip, he's been regurgitated back up onto the beach in what appears to be Israel, right back to the very place that he left, a return trip to the place where he should have started out from. So we'll give him credit for this. He's wise enough to turn back to God. He asks for forgiveness, and check this, this is really important to the story. God graciously rescues him. God puts him back on the path. Now, as I'm working through the story, a lot of random thoughts popped in my mind about the circumstances and what's going on in this story, things I probably hadn't paid a lot of attention to previously, but here's one thought that occurred to me. When he prays to God for forgiveness, when he asks God to rescue him and put him back on the path, does he have any idea that he's going to become fish vomit in that moment? I'm thinking not, but here's a reality. There's only two ways out of a fish, right? Okay. Okay. 
You tracking with me? I'm not going to get into detail. And one's not better than the other. You're both going to be pretty ugly. So this isn't going to end well for you, but you're going to get to live. Now, here's some detail for you. A great fish in the Hebrew language is actually referred to as a giant sea creature without any particular distinction. People have landed on the thought of it being a whale simply because whales are so large. But the reality is there's very, very few whales, extremely rare in the Mediterranean Sea, and they don't have that big of a throat. They actually don't have a throat big enough to swallow a man whole. And sharks, if they swallow you, they're going to chomp you up because they got some pretty good teeth, right? Good, good, good cutter teeth. But there's a unique fish that's found only in the Mediterranean, and it's called a whale shark. You can look it up later yourself, but you'll find that a whale shark actually has a giant throat, and it is big enough to swallow a man. And a whale shark actually in history has recorded other individuals, history's recorded this, other individuals who have been swallowed and lived to tell about it. One as recent as 1768, falling off of a frigate in the Mediterranean Sea in the midst of a storm. And when the sailors saw him fall in and a whale shark come up and grab him, the captain immediately commanded that they would fire a cannon against that shark. And they did, and they hit it in the side, and it regurgitated the man back out. And he had been in the belly of the fish. What's remarkable is not that he was swallowed by a fish, it's that he was kept alive, that he was kept alive for three days. Because in the ancient world, three days and three nights meant you're not only dead, you're dead, dead, dead. You're dead, dead, not coming back, dead. So Jesus says, as Jonah was in the heart of the whale three days and three nights, so shall the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth. God referring historically to Jonah and referring to Himself at the same time. Three days and three nights is this special phrase because it means long enough to be definitely dead. So there's no chance that Jonah's coming back from this unless God intervenes. Now if claustrophobia is your thing, this is your worst nightmare. You're not only trapped in a small space, you're trapped in utter darkness, dark, 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 on the bottom of the Mediterranean Sea. And you're in such a small space, you can't move. So don't be thinking of Pinocchio and Geppetto, all right? You're not going to get a match out of your pocket and light a match and you're going to sing songs with your father who's come to hunt you down. That's not going on here. You can't move. You're in the intestines of a sea creature. And God's going to release you from that. See, in the moments that we're describing here, Jonah is conscious. That's what chapter 2 is all about. He's very aware that he's not dead. He's alive, and there's a future for him. Now, many theologians have studied this over hundreds of years, and a lot of scientists have looked at this because people have been swallowed alive before. And here's one thing that they all speculate on that's probably a reality. Three days and three nights in the intestines, in the stomach, means he was exposed to all the stomach acid which means this guy who went in with fairly dark skin from the Middle East most likely came out with his skin washed very, very white, like pale white, like come back from the dead white, like deathly white. So he's regurgitated back up on the beach 
with this very white skin, with this very deep stench to him from the bowels of this fish. And that's not even the most significant thing. The most significant thing is that God has not treated him as his sins deserved. God showed him grace. Anybody here known the grace of God? Anybody here understand what he's going through in this moment? Let's go to the next chapter, chapter 3, verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Jonah, get up off the beach, arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord, because the threat is real. God really intends to bring destruction upon the Assyrian Empire if they don't repent. So the threat is very real, Jonah, and I want you to bring them the warning. If only they could hear the word of the Lord. If only there was someone with beautiful feet to bring them the good news. Then they could believe, but how are they going to believe without a preacher? Because the Word of God creates faith. Go to the next verse, Jonah chapter 3, verse 3. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three-day walk. Then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk, and he cried out and said, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. I don't know what's going on in his heart in this moment, but the story reveals that his heart is very far from the responsibility that God has given him. As far as Tarshish is from Nineveh, 3,000 miles, that's a good representation of how far his heart is separated from the responsibilities that God has given him because he does not have a love for these people. Well, let's watch what he does next. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. Verse 4, you just saw that. Then Jonah began to go through the city one day walk, and he cried out and said, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That has to be the weakest altar call I've ever seen in my life. There's no message prep going on there. He's not researching the commentaries. He's not looking at the ancient languages. There's nothing. God just said, will you just show up, Jonah? Will you just show up, and then I'll tell you what you need to say, and I'm just going to give you one sentence, Jonah. Can you handle that? One thing. In 40 days, I'm going to deal with you people if you don't turn, because God has such an incredible love for these people who are far from him. So in the depth of the sea, check this, you know this story, Jonah's alive in a sea creature and he receives God's mercy. And now he finds himself in the streets of Nineveh, this great city, but his heart is so far from the thing that God has called him to, from the very people he's been sent to. But in spite of Jonah, watch what God does, verse 5. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God, and they called a fast, and they put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat on the ashes. He issued a proclamation, and it said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat drink water. But both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth and let men, men call on God earnestly that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows? 
God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. See, even the king acknowledges these people rape, they pillage, they peel the skin off their victims, they impale them with spears. They're an incredibly violent people. The ancient prophet Nahum said, whoever became their prey never escaped alive. And even the king said, put away your wicked ways, put away your violent ways, put away your vile life, and maybe God will relent. Verse 10, when God saw their deeds that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. Clearly, God went ahead of Jonah to Nineveh. Clearly, God was already there. Clearly, God's already in Lansing. Clearly, God's already in Moscow. He's already in Beijing. God's already in New York City. He goes ahead of us to prepare the way because Jonah's not saving anybody here. Jonah's heart is not even into this. God's already prepared the hearts of the people to hear the word of the Lord if you just show up, Jonah. See, Jonah doesn't save anybody. You and I, we don't save anyone. God does that. God prepares the heart. God softens them. He merely gives us the privilege of being the messenger. So greater Nineveh, according to historians, it included this lesser wall that was the outer ring and the inner wall, which was a monstrous wall. According to historians, and you can actually see in archaeological digs today, they found the foundations of it, 50 feet wide by 100 feet tall. That's just the wall going around the city, and the wall is eight miles by eight miles by eight miles by eight miles. There's a lot of people living where this giant palace is at. But the outer ring, that area, that's the suburbs, that's Williamston, that's St. John's, that's Grand Ledge, that's Mason, that's Holt, that's Leslie. The perimeter around the Metroplex. So there's the outer wall, there's the inner wall, and Jonah's been given this responsibility to go to this city. For three days he walks the city because it's necessary to walk this entire metropolis. And he's just got a really simple message. 40 days, and that's all you've got. 40 days, and it's going to be overthrown, and you either change or you will be obliterated. And they change. They change, and they repent. And they heard the simplest thing. So just track this. God sends his person. His person rebels and goes the opposite direction. His person becomes fish food, goes to the bottom of the ocean. The people in Nineveh have no idea that he's rebelled. They're just going about their life. They're just doing what they do. They don't know that there's this guy sitting on the bottom of the Mediterranean in a fish. He gets regurgitated back up on the beach, and then he shows up in their city. And he's not just smelling like a dead fish. He's looking like a dead fish. And he's talking about death. He looks like death, he smells like death, and he's talking about death. Do you think he made an impression upon these people? I think there's too much danger in giving too much credit to him. That's all physical. He just had to show up and say what God told him to say. The credit goes to God because he softened the hearts of these people. See, God is so concerned enough to send Jonah, perhaps the most unwilling voice ever, 
Yet God so loves the world that he sent his one and only son. Wow. He loves Nineveh that he sends this unwilling voice, yet he sends his son to this entire globe that all the world would turn to God. How extraordinary, extraordinary applicable is this to us that we would be that one voice for the Lord, that we would be willing to pick up that mantle and say, how small of a task is it if I just have to show up? That's why Romans 10 really links with this. Romans 10, 14, how then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how in the world will they believe in whom they have not heard? And how will they hear if nobody ever talks about Jesus when they go to Bigby or Starbucks or school or stand in front of their locker in the hallway or working in the office and we just keep our mouths shut? How are they going to know? So the words of this smelly, deathly pale man, it spreads rapidly all around the city. Soon every quarter of this great metro area hears the word of God. And according to verse 5, they believe God. And as this prophet walks from street to street, just making his way through the neighborhoods, he's walking down Hazlitt Road, and he's walking down Cedar Street, and he's walking down Pennsylvania Avenue. He's saying, just let me tell you about Jesus just hear me out on this. Pretty soon, it makes its way around the entire metro area. And according to the passage you just read, people from every social strata, from the greatest to the least, maybe I should do this, maybe the greatest to the least this way, because that's the way we think. From every social strata, from White Hills to downtown Lansing, Everyone hears this, and every quarter responds to the Word of God. So in mercy, God gives Jonah a second chance. In mercy, God gives Nineveh a second chance. Who here has received a second chance this morning? In mercy, we've all received God's grace, and He gave us a second chance. We found Jesus. See, if God wanted to, He could end the story right there. He could end it with chapter 3, but there's just a couple verses remaining because here's what God still needs to do. He's got to rescue Jonah from Jonah because Jonah's caused a real problem for himself. Go with me to the next verse. Chapter 4, verse 1, but it greatly displeased Jonah and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, please, Lord, was this not what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. And if you know your Bible, you know that he's quoting almost verbatim Exodus chapter 34. Moses is on Mount Sinai, and he says to God, how should we call you? What's your name? I am that I am. I am the God who abounds in loving kindness giving mercy to a thousand generations. And you see Jonah quoting this, you are a compassionate God, you are gracious, you are abundant in loving kindness. Next verse, verse three, therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better than life. Why is he so angry? Because the literal Hebrew interpretation says Jonah became hot. 
meaning his blood is boiling in this moment, his blood pressure is going up. He's really mad at God because he has to go back to his nation now. He has to go back to the people of Israel. He lives among those people, and he has to say, um, you know our enemies in Assyria? There was a massive revival that broke out, and I led them all to God. And I don't want to do that. I'd rather die, so just kill me right now because I don't want to take responsibility for this. So check this, New Hope. He knows theology. He knows doctrine. He studied it. He can tell you a lot about God. He spent 68 weeks studying the book of Romans. Tracking with me? But it didn't translate to his heart. There's no love for people. So while he received grace, he doesn't want to accept that the they can have the grace of God. So Jonah has accepted compassion from God, but he doesn't want to give compassion. So he says back to God, this is what I knew would happen. This is just like you. This is exactly what you would do because he's so wrapped up in his own desires, which is a pounding for his enemy. He wants his enemy obliterated. He totally misses the will of God. So I have to ask myself, do I do that? Do we do that? Do we deny God's compassion and just share it with those whom fit in our they circle? Is it, is it just for the people that we know? Or is God's love for the entire planet to that degree? He doesn't want anyone to perish. Verse 4, the Lord said, do you have a good reason to be angry? There's no answer, you notice. Then Jonah went out from the city and sat east of it. There he made a shelter for himself and sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen in the city. Most theologians agree this is Jonah pouting. He's just throwing a hissy fit. It didn't go the way that I want to, but maybe there's a chance that God's still going to take them out. Maybe the repentance isn't real. Maybe it's not going to stick. Maybe they haven't really changed. So apparently he's thinking, I want a good seat for the fireworks. Give me some popcorn. I want a front row seat. I'll watch from the distance, and when they get incinerated, I'll be here to tell about it. Verse 6, so the Lord God appointed a plant, and it grew up over Jonah to be shade over his head to deliver him from his discomfort. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. But God appointed a worm, and when dawn came the next day, it attacked the plant, and it withered. Verse 8, when the sun came up, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint and begged with all his soul to die, saying, death is better than life to me. Because this region of the planet is largely treeless, if you're looking for a comparison city, Nineveh is right near the modern-day city of Mosul. Very little vegetation there, mostly rocks. So very likely, he built his shelter out of stone, as high as he could pile the rocks, but it didn't give him shade over his head. So he got shade in the morning sun and shade from the evening sun, but that noonday sun, it is beating down on him. So God, in effect, provides a roof over his head until the next day. Now, Lori and I lived in Arizona for a couple years, and we understand what it is to be in the desert. We lived in the Sonora Desert, where it gets to 115 degrees in July. And if you want to know what that feels like, just turn your oven on and open the door and stand in front of it. But it's a dry heat, they say. 
don't care, it's still hot. Hot is hot. I've not been in the Middle East, and I'm told that that noonday sun beating down on you can begin to boil the brain. You don't get some shelter, some relief. You want to die when you're in that setting. God's given him a roof, and then God takes away the roof, and Jonah is laid out, and he is furious with what God has done. He's furious at the death of his plant, and he's not stupid. He realizes God is behind this. So he gives in and says, I give, just let me die. This is the same guy who has just recently thanked and praised God from the belly of the fish for saving him, and now he wants death, and it's over a stupid plant. Or is there something more going on here? Well, here's the end of the story. Verse 9, then God said to Jonah, do you have a good reason to be angry about the plant? And he said, I have a good reason to be angry, even to death. And the Lord said, you had compassion on the plant for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hand as well as many animals? God's question in verse 11 leaves us with a sense of uneasiness because the story ends there. Chapter 4, verse 11, boom, the curtain drops. There's there's no more story. What's going on? I, I have no response from Jonah. How do I understand the silence? Is this like the ending to a bad movie? Did the guy get the girl? Did the girl get the guy? I want to know. How's it finish? What's going on here? I can tell you what's going on here. I'm absolutely convinced that Jonah got it. Here's why. Because he writes this historical narrative for future generations to say, here's how I messed up. Remember who he lives among? The very people that Paul had to write to? How are they going to hear without a preacher? How are they going to believe in him whom they've not heard? The very same people that Jonah has to go back to. And he writes down this information of what happened to him because he's saying, I didn't get it, but now I got it. That Jonah was so concerned over a plant that grew without the care of a plant gardener. How much more should God be concerned for the lost whom he incredibly loves? God's been working on the people of Nineveh for millennia. Did you know that if you go back to the book of Genesis, chapter 10, Nineveh first pops on the scene in Genesis? (laughs) And for millennia, God's been working on them? He's long-suffering, he's compassionate, he's patient, and then he finally sends the guy with the voice, just show up, Jonah. Jonah, you wanted a plant spared, but not people, and I've been trying to save them for generations. So God has to connect the dots for him, and here's what he does. Jonah, there's more than 120,000 people in that city who do not know their left hand from their right hand, and ancient historians recognize that phrase always referred to children of the age of seven and under. How many of us have children in our lives that don't know their left from their right? And they are really considered to be of a mental capacity. 
to recognize right shoe, left shoe. What, what is my right? What is my left? Is this my right? And we correct them. And over a period of time, they get to the age of seven and they're very confident. I got it now. I'm in second grade. I know my right hand. I know my left hand. Which means there's 600,000 adults in that city, almost three quarters of a million people. And Jonah, you love your plant, but you hate these people? How, how do you think that way, Jonah? What could he say? See, that's why the curtain drops. He is implored to silence by his own illogical reasoning. Jonah, what you're, what you're fastening out here, it doesn't make any sense. So I have to ask myself, because I could be just as guilty, is there a possibility that I can be like Jonah? Is the value system of my world so screwed up, so distorted, that God has to knock us upside the head? Do I accept God's grace and not distribute it to others? So Paul writes Romans chapter 10, verse 14, and he puts it so concise. How are they going to believe in him who they have not heard? And how are they going to hear without somebody bringing the word of God? Here's the two most basic issues coming out of this story. Jonah is no longer in the storm. Jonah is no longer in the bottom of the Mediterranean in the belly of the fish. He's no longer in the stench, in the darkness. But his attitude is as though those events never happened because his heart is not changed. He's not really yielded to God's will. And when what we want becomes what we want at all price, it usually becomes more important to us than even the people that God put in our lives. And ultimately, God has to recenter us and knock us upside the head and bring it back to center. It's absolutely true God could have chosen someone other than Jonah, but Jonah needed the lesson. So I translate that over to this thought before I let you go out the door. When people don't get their own way, they tend to fight back. And we tend to fight back with the strongest weapon that we have available to us. In Jonah's case, it is his supposed ability to affect the eternal destiny of those people whom he doesn't want to hang out with. I mean, it's the ultimate payback. We'll just let them go to hell, God. I, I know what you've given me, and I know what I have, and I know I've got the information, but I really don't want to talk to them, so let's just let them go to hell. It's the ultimate payback. You want to get even with somebody? Just let them go to hell. But the supreme example of the antithesis of that, where anyone else would show hate, Jesus shows love. When anyone else who's pinned to a cross would ask for God to take him out of that mess, and Jesus tells us he could have called ten legions of angels, no, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing, Father. The ultimate payback would have been just to let us all slide into hell because we are vile, we are belligerent, we are defiant to God, we are rebellious, we are full of sin, and Jesus had the power to just let us slide into hell. But He didn't do it, praise God. 
Praise God, he became the voice. Compassion overruled revenge, all for the purpose of bringing us the message of redemption. How much more willing should we be to pick up that mantle of responsibility and just talk about our Savior in the neighborhood, in the work environment, in the school setting? I know it's a heavy weight, but it's an obligation that God gave us. Go into all the world, speak to everybody. I want to pray for us that way, New Hope, that we would remember the responsibility that we have as we take on this week. Would you join me in that? Father, I recognize that the task that you've placed on us is incredibly intimidating at times. Many of us feel like we just don't even have enough information. Or we've got an attitude problem like Jonah. But you've revealed to us this morning that in even the simplest conversation, even a one-sentence statement can change the direction of somebody's life. And how seemingly insignificant our arguments become when we weigh it against the scale of people perishing versus our desire to have our own way. So, Father, I ask that as you send us out this morning and as we take on the afternoon and we take on the week, we take on the month of August that's almost here, that you re remind us of not only the responsibility but the privilege. And when you put people in our path, that's perhaps, God, because you've already prepared their heart and we just have to be a willing voice. So I pray that you would remind us of that, of the, of the great privilege we have of wearing your grace on us and the opportunity to share it with others. Pray for this in the magnificent name of the one who redeemed us at great price, the Lord Jesus Christ, and all God's people said, amen. Have a great week, New Hope.